Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Yes She Can Project. I'm delighted to be joined today by the gorgeous Jennifer. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Miss Shannon. Thank you for inviting me on to, to be part of your podcast. Thank you very, very much. Oh, thank you for coming on. Um, for anybody who doesn't know you, would you be able to give us a brief introduction into who you are and what you do? Right. Well, who am I? Well, um, my name is Jennifer Rosenberg, and I'm very lucky that I've actually had three sections of my career path, which is, okay. which is wonderful. I started my life off working for a company called Marks & Spencer, who I'm sure everybody listening knows about. <laughs> and I was fortunate enough to work my way up from the post room, joining in the post room, and then working my way up and becoming a senior fashion buyer there. Mm-hmm. responsible at that time for all ages separates which um I'm I'm going to date myself now but that was in the 60s when London was swinging and everything was happening it was the hottest place to be oh. we, we had the Beatles we had Mary Quant we had v and everything was happening in London mm-hmm. then I had the opportunity an opportunity presented myself and I left there and I then became a supplier to MS. So I went on the other side of the desk. And again, I was very fortunate. I managed to build the business up. Um, and we became Marks and Spencer's largest ladies' wear suppliers. Wow. And we, we sold out in the mid-90s. So that was career two. So I went mm-hmm. from fashion buyer, well, post-room girl fashion buyer. Then I became a supplier to MS, managing to become a very, very large and forceful supplier to them and then the third career that I've had well it's not a career but it's something I found myself passionate about and involving is um this charity which I now run called the Heart Cells Foundation okay and that's the three segments of my life wow I can't wait to delve a bit more into those (laughs) (laughs) I'm only telling you certain things not everything Michelle (laughs) certain Um, things are no no (laughs) <laughs> so let's talk about the charity first of all um, the, it, sorry um, it was founded by your late husband Ian Rosenberg um, yes could you could you talk us through kind of how the idea came about and the circumstances surrounding the founding of the charity well my husband um, developed a very serious heart condition And in 2003, when we went to see his cardiologist, because he wasn't feeling well, he was diagnosed with a condition called heart failure. Um, I don't know whether you would like me to explain what heart failure is. Yes, exactly. Because I think a lot of people, they they hear the words, but they're um, they're not clear on what what it means. The heart acts like a pump through your body. So it's a muscle that pumps all the blood and water through your body. And heart failure is a condition which you get when the heart becomes enlarged and the muscle cannot work as efficiently as it should do. So this causes um, fluid to build up in the body. So you find yourself with swollen ankles. You you finish up with um, swollen ankles, swollen arms um, and great difficulty in moving one of the hardest things when you have heart failure is being able to move up the stairs because you you haven't got the energy to move up climb up the stairs but equally you get very breathless and that's another problem because 
the, if you think the lungs are very near the heart and they're starting to build up with fluid and it stops you breathing efficiently. Yeah. And it is incredibly debilitating. Oh. And there, other than medication or a transplant, that's the only thing that can be done for heart failure. Oh, my gosh. And I don't know if your listeners are aware, but with a heart transplant, there are only 100 heart transplants carried out in the UK each year, which is nothing when you think of the amount of people that need them. Yeah. And it's not because we don't have the technique. We do have the technique. We don't have the organ donors. Yeah. So, and that is something I feel very strongly about, that one should, no, not should. I believe that one should donate one's organs because mm -hmm. if you save somebody else's life, then why not? Yes, exactly. But not. But it's a free choice. I mean, everybody has a free choice whether to do it or not. Mm -hmm. So, right, so we went to see this cardiologist and my husband was really in a bad way and the cardiologist just gave him weeks to live. Oh. So this was in 2003. So, um, but he said he'd just been to a presentation given by a very young cardiologist um, mm -hmm. at Bart's Hospital in London, talking about this procedure that was happening in Germany right. by a professor Zaire who was injecting a patient with a damaged heart, injecting that heart with their own stem cells. Wow. And the stem cells were helping to regenerate the damaged heart. Okay. So off, so we, we meet up with this young cardiologist whose name's Anthony Maver, and we all go to Germany. And my husband was somebody that everything had to be done immediately. He didn't <laughs> yeah. know what tomorrow was. It didn't exist in his vocabulary. <laughs> yeah. It had to be done now. So we go to see this, this doctor, Anthony Maver, and he arranges for us to go to Germany. And we did all this within about two or three weeks. Oh, my so God. We, oh, it's that quick. We went to Germany and my husband had the treatment. And Michelle, it was incredible. It gave him three wonderful years that he wouldn't have had. I mean, one of the telling things was the stairs at home. When we yeah. came home, he could walk up to bed. Prior oh, to God. that, he was sleeping downstairs. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was magic, absolute magic. Oh, In wow. fact... Some of our patients latterly call them the magic cells because it is, it's like magic being injected into your body. So in conversations with Anthony Mather, who presented this paper, and it was something he felt strongly about, we, we yeah. discovered that there was no money in the UK for this research. Okay. And Ian being the compassionate person he was, felt it was so wrong that we were fortunate we could afford to go to Germany and pay for this treatment. Why should people that are suffering in the UK not have the opportunity of having this magic treatment? Yeah. So that um, triggered Ian and I setting up the charity called the Heart Cell Foundation. And on speaking to Anthony Mather, uh, Anthony told my husband it would take six million to start all the original trials. So Ian okay. said, being the born optimist as well, don't worry, I'll get it for you. Oh, so we did. <laughs> so we started a fundraising campaign and we had a wonderful launch at the Mansion House in 2004 where the Lord Mayor was there and Esther Ranson and it was wonderful. And that launched the charity. Wow. But we also had some wonderful press in the Daily Mail by a wonderful young journalist called Marianne Power. And we had four pages of free editorial in the mail. Wow. And that brought in a lot of money. 
people were sending five pound note and I mean then they were sending five thousand pound checks that was how diverse the money that was coming yeah. in mm. but just to so, prove that everybody wanted to help everybody but also a lot of people identified themselves in that position absolutely I mean one story I know was um subsequently let's roll the clock back a few years and I we had um a gathering at Bart's of um pay a patient gathering Yes. And this lady came up to me. She said, I've just got to give you a hug and a kiss. She said, I read the first article about your husband um, going to Germany. And we, my husband, had the same condition. And we as a family decided that we'd sell our house to send my husband to Germany. Aww. Then I subsequently read that you were starting this treatment and the charity was going to fund this treatment in the UK at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. So we took the house off the market, we joined the scheme, and she said, my husband is here today. So she said, not only have I got my house, I've got my husband. And she oh gave me, God. isn't that a wonderful, these are the things that make this charity so amazing, that you're dealing with families, and it is families. As I oh said before, when illness happens, it's family that gets affected. Absolutely. But they're so appreciative, and they just can't thank you enough. Because you, you're transforming not only the lives of that one patient, you're transforming the lives of their family. And in this case, they didn't have to sell their house. Wow. Can you imagine what a different outcome that would have been? For Absolutely. Them? Absolutely. So, so we started the charity and we raised, started to raise the £6 million. And we then um, started, the first patients were treated in 2005. And we conducted three gold standard trials, which was for three different types of patients. One patient that had heart failure, another group of patients that were actually having a heart attack and were rushed to A&E. And at that point, we're given the opportunity of injecting heart cells back into their heart damaged hearts to stop the heart getting more damaged. And then the third group were a younger group, mainly in their 40s and 50s, that had never had a heart attack. And for some unknown reason, they developed an enlarged heart. And that, that, that group is called a cardiomyelopathy group. There was no reason for this heart to suddenly change its shape. Okay. I bet it was really interesting to look through. The- I can't hear you, Michelle. I can't hear you. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can yeah. hear you now. I bet it was really interesting for you to look through the findings of those oh, three separate groups absolutely. as well. Because, you know, one tends to think of heart, heart attacks, heart failure with older people. But yeah. it isn't, it mm-hmm. isn't new. I mean, it's really surprising how many um, younger people get affected by it. Look what happened. I know it was a different condition with the footballer Ericsson yes. in the World Cup. He mm-hmm. just collapsed on the, on the pitch. Yeah. And he had, um, it's a different type of condition. But who would expect a fit young man? to suddenly have a heart problem. So it's, it's, a, it's a disease that attacks everybody. Yeah, and it's a disease that is non-biased as well. Absolutely, you're so right, so right. How, how did you find Jennifer? Was it, because obviously it was a pioneering treatment and it still is a pioneering treatment mm, because, it was, because it was so new, was it frightening for you and your husband to kind of take the plunge and be like, right, okay, let's give no. this a go? You know, I mean, no, not really, because 
as, as it, there's no, there was no downside because they were my husband's yeah. own stem cells. And although they got treated in the laboratory and then came back, they were his own stem cells and the body yeah. just rejected itself. Wow. You know, that's one of the major problems when you have transplants is the rejection. Yes, of course. And you yeah. have a lot of medication to try and alleviate the problem of rejection. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's amazing to think that I know that obviously our, our own bodies are incredible, but the fact that we can heal ourselves mm. essentially well, is, is amazing. This, I mean, since stem cells have evolved, which is not that long, I mean, we were, we were there in 04, but probably only from about, I don't know, 10, five or 10 years before, yeah. we've been talking about stem cells. And they are the building blocks of the body. Your body yeah. is full of stem cells, full. It's just, and I know there's still a lot of research going on at the moment for stem cell treatment on liver disease and on macular yeah. degeneration. And, you know, there's a, a lot going on, a mm-hmm. lot. I, th- I think it's definitely something that, that will probably turn out to be the cure for, for the future. Well, I, I, to me, I always say it's the biggest medical breakthrough in the 21st century. We are rewriting the medical journals. Yeah, absolutely. We really, really are. So let's go, let's go back, Jennifer, to you personally. Um, right. So obviously we've, we've chatted a little bit. We've touched upon um, your career before when you were um, a fashion buyer mm. at M&S um, at the height of the miniskirt. Yeah, um, that's, that's my claim to fame. <laughs> yeah. Thank God for Mary Quant and the miniskirt. <laughs> um, we, did you, do you feel like you were always destined to go down the fashion route? Is it something that had always interested you? Yeah. I, I think I was always, you know, I was, I was never an academic. I always knew at school, I was going to leave school at 16. I did not want to, I mean, we're talking now about the late 50s, early 60s. I did not want to go to university. University then wasn't like university now. It's a whole different. And I wanted to get out into the workplace because I liked the excitement of business and everything that surrounded it. Um, My one dream had been to become an actress. But you know, all all little girls have these dreams. But my that was exasperated by the fact that I went to drama school and I went to ballet school and I did all these things and you know I did reasonably well. But I I was never going to be up there. And my parents, being very practical, um, wouldn't didn't encourage me to go down this route at all. But they knew okay. of they knew of somebody who'd worked at Eminence and they said that Arts and Spencer gives a wonderful training. It's got wonderful opportunities. Yeah, particularly for women, and that they felt this is somewhere I should try for. So I tried for a job, mm-hmm. and then the routes in were you could go into store management, but right. that meant you had to work Saturdays, which I didn't want to do. <laughs> then I could do a secretarial course and be a secretary. Well, I'm a little, I didn't realize I was dyslexic then, but I have really problem spelling, so that wouldn't okay. work. So I went in the post room, which was the administrative route. Right. So when I went for my first interview, which was before my O-level results had come through, Mm -hmm. um, I got offered a job and in the post room, fine, no problem. But then I got reasonable results. So when I went, started, they said to me, oh, you'll only be in the post room for two weeks. You're going to be, you know, promoted upwards. So that was good. 
Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So I had my two weeks in the post room, which was very exciting, pushing this clothes trolley, getting checked what one was wearing every day because Marks and Spencer standards were so high. Really? Oh, yes, absolutely. Wow. And, you know, it was the days of stockings and, you know, you could, if you had a ladder, forget it. You weren't allowed, not allowed out on that floor. Oh, my gosh. And I actually, I actually welcome these um, standards because I'd actually been educated in a convent. And okay. when you're in a convent, you've got structure and discipline that I actually respond very well to. Okay. And so it didn't bother me at all. Um, and, you know, I quite like dressing nicely, so I was mm-hmm. quite So then I moved up. I went into administration. And when I, not administration, I went into the accounts department. Right. And I was very fortunate that um, the accounts department were responsible for getting all the business checks signed for the company that had to go out on a daily basis. And they needed two signatures, the company secretary plus one of another director. So right. somebody had to be responsible for taking these checks around the building. So suddenly I was given that opportunity of doing that. So mm-hmm. I because I was always nicely turned out and whatever. No ladders in the tights. No ladders in the tights. You're so right. And I never to this day will ever have a ladder. <laughs> I can't bear it. Um, so um, so that got me noticed as well. I was going yeah. around to it. I didn't knock on the doors. It was all arranged, which directors I would visit mm-hmm. and find the checks and everything. So again, I sort of got myself noticed and you know, I moved from there, so I was in the account. Then I moved to distribution, which was the right. department that distributed the merchandise, mm-hmm. which probably wouldn't exist today because it would probably all be done by a chip or something. <laughs> yeah. today, it was then it was all done manually, and you had to make sure if um, I was doing blouses and skirts that, that they had a balanced range of merchandise. So you couldn't okay. have all long sleeve blouses or all shorts. You had to make sure you had a sleeveless, a short sleeve, whatever, and the colours. I enjoyed that. I loved that. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I went into my dream job, which was a buying department, because that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to get involved on the buying side. Yeah. And um, that's how it all evolved. And it was at the time of the swinging 60s and the miniskirts, and I managed to persuade. You know, the M&S board were really wonderful. They came around all the mine departments and they knew exactly who we are. I, mean, I was a junior, right? I'm not yes. a big client. But they talked to us. They somehow felt that um, we knew what was going on at that level, at the younger level. Yeah. And they would always ask our opinion on things. And it was a wonderful, it was wonderful to have that opportunity to convince your boss yeah. what you think, what you thought was happening. Wow, but it shows what what an amazing impression you must have made, the well, fact that they trusted you with the, those decisions. Well, no, no, no. They had to approve the decisions. Oh. I, I just guess when these mini skirts were happening and they didn't have any short skirts at all. And I could see, I mean, I, you know, I could see what was happening. I was wearing them and they were all, yeah. and I, I just, you know, I said, somebody had asked me, what did I think about this? And I said, well, I think so. We should be trying mini skirts. Mm-hmm. So, and I was quite fortunate because I was short. So when I held a 16-inch skirt up against me, it wasn't so short. <laughs> if they realised how short those skirts were going to go, anyway, we'd never have got it past them. Anyway, we did the trials and the rest is history. They, we couldn't make them fast enough. I mean, wow. they were just so, so popular. 
how how scary was it though to go from because obviously we're talking about your role at that time how scary was it for you to go on and take the leap and set up by yourself and actually end up manufacturing for them well it didn't quite happen like that because my personal life sort of changed so um, I left because of my personal life because it wasn't (laughs) Work me staying at M and S because I then married one of the manufacturers. So and he was my largest manufacturer. So it just wasn't going to work. Yeah. So I knew I had to leave because logistically he was still a major supplier to M and S. He was an MD of a public company. So I had to leave, Mm -hmm. and that was fine because he opened a small factory for me. And who was I? Who was my first customer? Marks and Spencer. You see, that wouldn't happen today. It was just such a unique scenario to be yeah. living through. And they felt that I had a lot of experience. I knew what was happening. I knew what the customer wanted. And they yeah. valued me as a supplier. Wow. Is, it, is there any um, like poignant lessons that, that you have taken from that particular time in your life that you now apply to I think nowadays, to me, the most important thing is to, if you want something, you really have to go for it, not be sidetracked. Yes. I'm, I'm actually, I am, I mean, I, and I think when I was younger, you, you weren't, I wasn't scared of anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is true of all young people. I wasn't yeah. scared of anything. And I was fortunate enough to be part of this exciting time, you know, let me just paint the picture because London, obviously, the war finished in 45. Yeah. London was decimated. The whole country, I mean, we had cities like Coventry that were bombed to the ground. Oh. And we were very impoverished as a company. We'd won yeah. the war, but we lost the financial war. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were really, it was very, it, rationing went on for seven years after the war. Wow. I mean, as a little girl, if I wanted to buy sweets, I mean, you imagine with your daughters, they want sweets. You've got to give them a coupon because it wasn't a question of even money. You had to have the coupons because the shopkeeper could only sell you the stuff if he had the coupons. Oh. Even our clothing, Gosh. clothing manufacturers were only were controlled with what they could like. So they would produce, instead of producing party dresses, which they wouldn't do, they'd produce um, vests and underwear because these were the important things practical practical mm-hmm. and all your clothing had this little um sign on it they were like two eyes and that's like the utility stamp and shops couldn't sell anything unless they had the utility stamp gosh i mean you have no con i mean I, I, we didn't feel deprived by any stretch don't get me wrong i we didn't feel we were lacking in anything but when you look back, it's when you look back and you then analyse that period, you realise how tough it was. It must have been so tough for our parents, so tough. I can't hear you, Michelle. I've lost you again. Oh, OK. Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think we realise quite how lucky we are, and especially our own children as well. Hmm. Oh, yes. I mean, it was just, it was a fact, you know. Yeah. The country was devastated. There was nothing. Everything was in short supply. Yeah. And gradually, you know, things and buildings. There were bomb sites everywhere, all over London. My gosh. I mean, you just have no comprehension. Yeah. It was like so. Against that background, suddenly you go through school. I leave school. I'm not really. I mean, obviously, I was aware of the war, but you know, but and then suddenly. 
62-63 London implodes. This oh. is just surreal. Yeah. You've got the Beefers, you've got Silla Back, you've got Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Cavern, Vidal Sassoon, um, Twiggy, uh, Bieber, oh. Mary Kwan. Yeah. It was just unbelievable. London was the centre. I don't know if you've ever seen the footage of when the Beefers arrived in New York. I'm not sure if I have. But then you should look at it. Yeah, well. And they'd never seen anything like it in New York either. I mean, Mm -hmm. they were just, they took the world by storm. Yeah. And we had Carnaby Street. I mean, London was the hottest place. Almost like it had been brought back to life in a sense. Almost as if it had been regenerated and gone in a totally different direction. Wow. I bet that was a really exciting time. It was so exciting. You cannot comprehend how exciting it was. And it seemed, you know, when we we bought these miniskirts and then they started selling. I mean, they were just walking out. We were selling skirts then off counters, not even on hangers. The customers were pulling them off. They were fighting them. (laughs) Like Boxing Day sales, isn't it? (laughs) Boxing Day, but it wasn't a sale. Yeah. Yeah. So it was this whole... And we didn't seem to be able to do anything wrong. I mean, as I was being promoted within that sort of um, separate world, and I did a special trouser arrangement because MLS didn't sell trousers, so we put a range together, and I was given the responsibility for selling wow. that. And I could choose whichever manufacturers and fabric I wanted, the whole thing. I mean, and they went out and sold. I mean, we couldn't go wrong. We could oh. not put a foot wrong. We seemed not to put a foot yeah. wrong. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. You've um, actually, you've actually, Jennifer, been awarded an OBE um, mm. by the Queen, haven't you? How surreal was that moment for you? That was so surreal. I got that for services to industry. Yeah. Because my, all of my factories were in the northeast of England, which was a very deprived area. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, oh, that was an incredible day. I, I couldn't believe it, Michelle. As we drove through the gates of Buckingham Palace, because you drive, you know, drive through. I thought this can't be happening to me. Oh, pinch me. <laughs> uh, pinch, pinch. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate the Queen gave me my OBE, which was just so, I, I didn't oh. realise till that morning, driving through the gates, how, how special it was going to be. Yeah. It's it was one of those great, ingrained in your memory. Ingrained forever. in your memory. Absolutely. And she was wonderful. And I mean, I got that in about, I think it was 88 or something, 87, 88. Wow. Um, let's let's go back um, to the Heart Cells Foundation. Mm. When I was doing my research, and I spoke to you before, Jennifer, honestly, that the stories from the patients and the lives that you have mm. completely transformed with the charity. Mm. Have, have you, the other thing that I noticed as well was, it, is your constant involvement. You're always there speaking mm. to the patients and, mm. and you can just tell from the way that you speak mm. how much passion mm. is behind your work. Um, do, do you ever have a chance to kind of sit back and, and really have a look at, wow, this is incredible and, and really appreciate how much good you're doing? Well, I'm not some, I tend to look forward, you see. I don't tend okay. to and think, what have I done? I'm always looking to see where I'm. And I learned this at MS. MS never lets you li- live on your laurels. Right. If you something went well, they'd always think, well, you, but you should be doing this. They would always push you that. 
And that was brilliant for me, absolutely. Wow. And even now, we're, we're treating patients on a regular basis and we fund the compassionate unit of arts. But now we're starting a big eight million pound fundraiser campaign. So if any of your people that listen to you want to write a check, I'll be very happy to come and pick it up. Now, mm -hmm. we're, start, we're starting um, an eight million pound fundraising campaign. And the reason for this big fundraising campaign is that we have to do a phase three trial, which is larger yeah. than the original trials. And the point of this trial is that if the results are the same of what we've experienced before, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be, yeah. we will then be able to go to the governing bodies of the national health system, NICE and whatever, and be able to then roll it out across the UK. Because that's my dream. That was yeah. my husband's dream, to make this treatment available to everybody through the national health. Yeah, absolutely. At the, at the moment, it's only available at Barts. And people are coming from all over the country. But the plan is, that's why we want to raise this mega sum of money. Yeah. So that we can now roll this out across the UK. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we so, need to kind of get the, get the word out there as much the word as possible. Absolutely. absolutely. So I'm not looking back thinking, well done, Jennifer. I'm looking <laughs> forward thinking, Jennifer, where are we going now? And we know where we're going now. Yeah. In fact, we've just had a meeting this morning. We're planning for this eight million pound campaign. You know, you've got to promote yourself. So we're planning yeah. this special film that will get the message. We, I find, and I don't know if you're the same as I find, film is the best media for telling your story. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell my story, but it's far has far more impact when we show an appeal film that we've made. Yeah. But we've also got patients telling you how their lives have improved. Yeah, that, that really moved me, the, the videos that are on your they, website. They're so important. They, they are. are true. That's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. so now we're planning this big campaign over 22-23. And um, hopefully when I hit the 8 million, you can interview me again. Yes. <laughs> As a revisited conversation. Absolutely. That would be amazing. Um, so how can people find out more, Jennifer? Where can they find the charity well, and how we, can they We have a wonderful website. If you go to www.heartcellsfoundation.com, yeah. that's our website. We've got one section that will give you the case studies. You can get information how, how you can apply to join mm -hmm. the scheme at Barts. Everything is on that website. There's even an old-fashioned thing called a telephone number. <laughs> it's something that's nearly defunct nowadays well, it is but it shouldn't be because there's a lot of people that can't necessarily uh, maneuver navigate it exactly and I, th I think it's far better sometimes especially in situations like this you want to be talking to somebody on the you phone do. don't you absolutely you know you have to think my generation this IT is all new to us. I mean, yeah. we were brought up with it. I mean, it's just something very new, ordering online, doing this and that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we've got going out this week, we're sending out a grand draw. Okay. For the heart cells. So we're doing it um, by email. Right. But put a telephone number on because there is a group of more mature people that support us that can't buy the tickets online, but they'll be able to pick up the phone and buy them on via the telephone. That's wonderful because then you're then you're including everybody. In. Everybody, yes. Yeah. No, oh. we have to. I'm, but I, you know, I'm so pleased we've got a telephone on it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so finally, a question, Jennifer, that I love <laughs> to hear the answers to. Um, right. 
if you could go back and give your one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? What would I do? You mean something different to what I've done? Oh, I think just really advice. I think really my advice is to, to follow your instincts, to really go, if you believe in something, then go for it. Yeah. And if you're wrong, well, fine, you'll learn. If, you, if it doesn't mm-hmm. work, you'll learn by it, because that's what life is. It's a learning curve. And you learn as much from the wonderful things you achieve and also the mistakes you make. Absolutely. I absolutely love that. That's perfect. Um, So it's been wonderful to have you on, Jennifer. And I am absolutely looking forward to re-interviewing you again as soon as you hit that 8 million. Okay, we have a date. I can't give you the actual date, but we have, that will happen. Okay, Michelle, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon.